Welcome back to Gulf Coast Life. I'm John Davis. COVID-19 hospitalizations, primarily among unvaccinated people, continue to strain resources for healthcare systems in southwest Florida. Lee Health reported this morning that 596 COVID patients are hospitalized in the system's five hospitals, including 12 pediatric patients. That compares to 619 hospitalized patients the day prior and marks just the second time in the past month that the number of COVID patients discharged in a 24-hour period has outpaced the number of new admissions. While this is guardedly positive news, resources are still incredibly strained. Lee Health is at 101% of staffed operational bed capacity with just 3% of ICU rooms available. Earlier this week, Lee Health officials reported that the neonatal intensive care unit at Golisano Children's Hospital is fuller than it's ever been. And symptoms of a COVID infection tend to be more severe in pregnant women, and in some cases, babies are having to be delivered early so that the mother can go on a ventilator in an effort to save her life. For the remainder of the hour, we'll be exploring guidance that the COVID-19 vaccine is safe for pregnant women and their babies in utero, as well as for nursing new mothers. I recently spoke about these concerns with Lee Health System Director of Obstetric Services, Dr. Sherry Morris, and Lee Health Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist and Interim Chief of Quality and Patient Safety, Dr. Stephanie Stovall. Let's hear that conversation now. Specifically, Dr. Stovall, during Lee Health's press conference earlier this week on the pandemic, I was a bit shocked to hear you say that the neonatal intensive care unit at Golisano Children's Hospital has never been as full as it is now. Um, what is the current patient capacity for that unit, and, and how many premature babies are, are receiving treatment in the unit now, roughly? So our NICU has 64 beds in the main unit, and then we have an additional section that has six beds, so 70 total beds, and we have 71 babies in the NICU right now, and then we have an overflow unit on a different floor of the hospital where we have a few additional babies. I don't know the exact number, but I know that earlier this week it was four in that overflow area. Okay, wow, wow. And um, to what extent is this you know, need for overflow right now part of what we're seeing with the spread of the more virulent and more transmissible Delta variant of the coronavirus? Well, the fortunate part on the baby side is that most of these babies don't have COVID. I mean, um, COVID is not the reason that they are in our neonatal ICU. Um, but unfortunately, if they're delivered early because of prematurity or complications, then they are in the NICU because they need that support that they would have otherwise gotten had they been able to stay in utero which is a result of what Dr. Morris is seeing in her practice. Right. Dr. Morris, um, I want to pivot to you. Um, Early on in the vaccine rollout, I I understand, you know, OBGYNs weren't necessarily pushing as hard for their pregnant patients to get vaccinated. But of course, we've seen that change. Can you walk us through maybe a little bit of the timeline on how your guidance to pregnant women may have changed um, over time uh, concerning the pandemic and the vaccine and, and just, you know, what you're seeing among your patients when it comes to COVID infections? So I think I think in the very beginning when the vaccines were released, pregnant women and lactating women were excluded from the original trials that um, were were looking at the safety of the vaccines and the efficacy. So there wasn't a recommendation, although 
what we know of these types of viruses, it was felt that they would be safe in pregnancy and in lactating women. However, we were lacking that data. Um, and then it wasn't until um, just you know a few months ago that the uh, American College of OBGYN Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine and other government agencies that report up to the CDC came through with some data that has been coming through on pregnant and lactating women and showing that there is not um, an increase um, adverse effects from the vaccine. And the data has been very reassuring um, that it is safe and effective uh, during pregnancy. And because pregnancy is associated with increased risk of um, severe disease, if you do, you know, for women who get COVID, that was another reason that pushed for the recommendation. So once our governing bodies um, made a recommendation that pregnant women should receive the vaccine, I think a lot of physicians were reassured that they can tell their patients uh, confidently and comfortably that the vaccine um, was safe in pregnancy and could help prevent uh, complications that are related to COVID infection. Uh, for instance, preterm delivery. So, uh, so now the OBGYNs um, and other uh, healthcare providers that take care of pregnant women um, are recommending vaccination in pregnancy because uh, our, our governing bodies agree with that. We know that it's safe in pregnancy and we're seeing the horrible effects on our pregnant patient population um, who are getting COVID. So, you know, for those reasons, I, I think most all of us now are are strongly encouraging and recommending that our patients get vaccinated at any time during pregnancy um, or postpartum when they're lactating. What is it about the status of being pregnant that puts someone at greater risk from the virus? I mean, what even just a normal healthy pregnancy, it just uh, uh, it, it has an impact on one's immune system. Right. Exactly. So, you know, it's multifactorial, but, you know, probably one of the, the biggest things is really any respiratory illness is going to impact pregnant women differently, especially in the third trimester, because there's different, there's pulmonary changes that occur with um, our lung capacity uh, from the gravid uterus, and that impacts on how we handle our respiratory uh, infections. And we're a little bit more compromised, compromised when we're pregnant than when we're not pregnant. Women are so that's, that's part of it. Um, the other part of it is that women are, are somewhat immunosuppressed when we're pregnant. We're carrying a fetus. Um, it's a foreign body, more or less, and we're, we're slightly immunosuppressed. So that probably plays a role into it. Um, other things, too, that, that can happen in pregnancy, um, we're at more at risk for coagulopathies. That means our blood can clot easier when we're pregnant than when we're not pregnant. Um, for various reasons. Um, so that kind of plays into it too. So there's a lot of things that put us at risk because of how this COVID virus um, causes infection and causes disease um, in, in people. And those things are naturally a little bit worse in pregnancy and then you, and then you throw in a virus that makes them even worse. Um, so women who get moderate and severe disease, you know, they're, they're just going to be sicker than they would be if they weren't pregnant. It's that simple. Yeah. And Dr. Morris, um, you know, I've been reading these terrifying stories about pregnant women, you know, having to undergo C-sections earlier than they ideally would uh, because the mother needs to be placed on a ventilator um, in an effort to save her life from a severe COVID infection. 
Is that something you're seeing at Lee Health? You know, we haven't, fortunately, we haven't seen that that happen a lot. Um, I'm not saying it hasn't happened, and I don't have exact numbers for you, but it has been a few of those types of cases, and it is completely devastating um, to see that happen um, to our patients and having a mom deliver her baby and then go on a ventilator and knowing that she will probably never see that baby um, is just heart-wrenching. Oh, my gosh. Um, Would that be the only reason that a COVID infection in a pregnant woman would lead to a premature birth? Or can the infection itself um, cause a woman to go into labor early, even if she doesn't need to be on a vent, even if there's not medical intervention? So, so it's actually should as it doesn't they don't have to be on the vent the data is showing that just moderate disease alone that meaning that if the patient gets covid and they progress to a covid pneumonia we're seeing those women who are increased then become at they then become at increased risk for preterm birth and preterm delivery so so they don't have to get that sick to deliver preterm, they can just get the pneumonia part of it, which will, you know, result in hospitalization. And then all the things that come with being hospitalized, we'll we'll start them on the same medications that non-pregnant women get, or at least most of the same medications and the same type of care. But that can increase their risk of going into preterm labor and delivering in and of itself. And we don't really know why. We don't, I I can't give you a reason, like we haven't figured that out yet. you know, that that data is still to, to show itself. Yeah, and that's a good point to make that, you know, despite the leaps and bounds that we have made in learning how to get better at treating this illness, um, it, there's just still a lot we don't know yet. There's not a lot of um, demonstrable empirical data out there. But I, I'm curious about whether or not a COVID infection in a pregnant woman, and, and I don't know if, if there is any data on this or if this would just be anecdotal, do they tend to be less severe if the infection occurs early on in the pregnancy as opposed to closer to the due date, or does it not seem to matter? Um, I can't really answer that question with data. So you're right, it's going to be antidotally. Um, it seems to be the second and third trimester is where we're seeing the more complicated cases as opposed to the first trimester. Um, and if you think about the physiological changes that happen in pregnancy, that would make sense because you start to see more of those physiological changes, you know, as the uterus gets larger um, and all the other things that take place in pregnancy. So to answer your question, I would say yes. Do I have numbers to back that up? I don't. Sure, sure. Um, and to what extent would you say the pregnant patients you're seeing now are are really heeding this change in guidance and getting vaccinated? So again, I wish I I wish I had numbers. I wish I could keep track of all of that um, easily. We're trying, but I don't have good numbers. I would say pre recommendation, we were probably I would say in my practice, maybe 20 to 30 percent were amenable to the idea of getting vaccinated or had already received vaccination. Um, Now, I think that Mark might be moving closer to 40 to 50 percent, but we still have a lot of work to do on educating our pregnant patient population, um, a lot of um, question answering to do, a lot of support to give, 
um, a lot of time to spend. And it's not only that we have to uh, convince our patients um, about what we know and how safe we perceive the vaccine to be and how important it is for them not to get really sick in pregnancy with COVID, that we also want to encourage them to have their family members um, who could potentially bring in COVID into the household from from them being able to do that because they're not vaccinated. Uh, so that's another part of our, our mission too. Yeah. Um, when an unvaccinated pregnant woman with a COVID infection does give birth, um, does that have an impact on the newborns? Are, are they protected from the virus in utero or that can it be passed on the same way vaccine-induced antibodies can be passed on through the placenta? So did you, um, were you asking me if a patient is unvaccinated or vaccinated? Uh, I, was, I was thinking specifically an unvaccinated patient. Can they pass on the infection to, to the baby okay. in utero? Oh, so mom has COVID and she's having the baby or she had COVID. Yes. Um, so, so they can pass on passive antibodies, passively, meaning those antibodies that they have, if they had time to do that, if her infection, say, was two weeks prior, she can pass on the antibodies to the baby through the placenta because certain antibodies will pass the placenta. The antibodies that we make that, that last forever, are our long-term antibodies, pass the placenta. So, yes, she can pass that to her baby. She can also passes antibodies in breast milk, which is which is really exciting. Once once we we generate those long-term antibodies. Um, virus, no. We we're pretty sure the virus isn't transmitted through the placenta. There were a few cases, and I and I bring this up only because I know people can search all over the internet and Google things and whatever, but there was maybe a few cases where they saw some virus in a placenta. But for the most part, they haven't really been able to show that that the virus passes through the placenta or the virus is transmitted vertically. And what that means is that that when a baby comes down the birth canal, we don't think babies are getting virus that way. If a neonate, a newborn gets the virus, it is probably from the contact they receive once the baby is born, you know, not from an in utero exposure or intravaginal exposure. Gotcha, gotcha. And um, I mean, your recommendation for new mothers who are breastfeeding is also still to to get vaccinated. I know that people have maybe not been getting vaccinated because they're concerned about the impact the vaccine could have on on, on the breast milk they're feeding their babies. But from what I'm understanding, uh, as far as we know, it, it's only going to provide a benefit. Right. Absolutely. They they have they shouldn't have any fear about getting vaccinated when they're pregnant. The, um, the vaccine, anything in that vaccine is not going to be passed into breast milk. Um, the antibodies will, once they start to make the antibodies, the baby will get the antibodies, um, which is always a really good thing. We, we really want our patients to get all the vaccinations they need in pregnancy because we know that they're going to make those antibodies and pass them to their baby through the placenta and then through breast milk. So super important. Um, but the virus doesn't go, um, the vaccine particles or anything like that, they don't go through the breast milk. And even if they did, which they don't, 
um, the baby would just digest them. It wouldn't be harmful to the baby. Gotcha. And what do you say to pregnant patients who remain vaccine hesitant or, or new moms who are nursing who remain vaccine hesitant? And, and I apologize because I know this must be a conversation you're, you Wait. might be tired of having at this point. No, no, no. Can you repeat the question? No, I'm sorry. Oh, just just what do you say to a pregnant woman or, or a woman who is nursing a new baby who remains vaccine hesitant? How do you try to convince them to, to get the vaccine so, or, or just that it's safe? You know, you know, that's a really good question. And I think everybody has such a different approach. I see it in my own practice. So I'll just give you my, my personal thing on what I say. And it always really depends on who you're talking to. If you're speaking with, you know, it just depends on, on the person and you can kind of get an idea of how you want to approach the conversation. But for the most part, I tell my patients that, you know, because some people are really educated and smart about like looking at all the numbers and looking at all the data and they'll come out and they'll tell you about the studies that are out there um you know because they they want they they are prepared to have that discussion or that argument but the the fact is this the fact is that we know for sure there is no doubt that if a pregnant woman gets covid she has a really she has a, a higher chance of getting sicker than she would if she wasn't pregnant and that sickness can affect her baby um, severely. It could. We know that. There's no denying that. And that's the here and now. And that's what I tell my patients. And I said, we may not know everything about the vaccine, but from what we know right now, it looks to be very safe. And even if there were, even if there were something down the road that could happen, which highly undoubtable, what do you you would rather take the chance of being healthy now and surviving now and keeping your baby safe than worry about some esoteric event that may happen because you got vaccinated five years ago. What's the point if you if you don't survive the illness or your baby doesn't survive the illness? So we're dealing with the here and now. Protect yourself in the here and now. Um, you know, we only have today, so we have to go by what we have. Yeah, well said. Uh, and Dr. Stovall, I'd like to bring you back into the conversation. Uh, earlier this month, during a previous Lee Health pandemic press conference that you spoke at, um, Golisano Children's Hospital Pediatric Hospitalist Dr. Solomon Abbottball also talked, and, and he talked about this emerging development of multisystemic inflammatory syndrome response in kids who had been sick yes. with COVID two or three weeks prior. This strange generalized inflammatory response affecting most organ systems in the body and if, if I understand Dr. Abbottball's comments correctly the challenge for physicians at that point is to really pinpoint which organ systems are most affected are we looking at you know the brain encephalitis or you know pneumonia and the lungs nephritis the kidneys uh, can you give us any kind of update on that situation is that something that you're still seeing happen with pediatric patients sure Sure, yeah, we are still seeing it. Fortunately, it doesn't really affect our neonatal population. It tends to be a little bit older um, in the kids that we see it. Uh, so preschool, school age um, are the typical ages for that. Um, so kids recover, uh, usually with very mild symptoms when they have acute COVID. And then a few weeks later, they come in usually with uh, prolonged fever, Sometimes they have um, significant inflammation of their mucous membranes, so red throat, red eyes, 
Um, they'll frequently have lymphadenopathy, swollen lymph glands in their neck, um, sometimes under their arms, sometimes in the groin. Um, many of them have abnormal numbers of blood cells. So their platelets, the, the cells that are responsible for clotting our blood may be low. They may have low numbers of white blood cells um, or even anemia. Many of them have inflammation of the liver. Many of them have inflammation of their kidneys. So the blood tests that we do to look at liver and kidneys are abnormal. Um, many of them just feel really bad. Um, they are um, irritable, uh, fussy, really hard for them to get comfortable. Whether that's just because of the fever or something else um, in addition to it, it's, it's really hard to know. Many of them have GI complaints, uh, vomiting, diarrhea, poor appetite. Um, most of them sleep a little extra. Um, we haven't seen a lot of seizures or things like that at this point. Um, the, any uh, brain effects have mostly been related to irritability, fussiness, um, and increased sleep. Um, they can have skin rashes that are um, pretty, pretty scary, uh, pretty uh, bright and uh, encompassing. Um, so those are the main things that we'll see. And, and some people have, you know, two or three of those symptoms. Some people it's it's one or two. Some people have four or five. It um, it just kind of depends upon the patient. But it, it can be really uncomfortable for the kids, really uncomfortable for the parents. And, um, you know, they think that they're out of the window of COVID causing a problem. And then three or four weeks later, this happens. Gotcha. And this, this generalized inflammatory response, just to reiterate, mostly in kids, this isn't something you're seeing widespread in adult COVID infections or pregnant women. That's right. That's right. And, and fortunately, it hasn't. Uh, we haven't yet had a case where um, a baby born to a pregnant woman has this kind of um, inflammatory response either. It is um, kids who have um, gotten COVID postnatally, so after birth at some point, um, and then a few weeks later, they get this inflammatory syndrome. Got you. And uh, Dr. Stovall, for patients who've had a previous pregnancy, and you know, this is fairly common, you know, they have other little ones at home, bringing home a new baby brother or sister to. Uh, given that, um, do you support or does the health system support this recent decision by the Lee County School District Superintendent um, to further restrict the opt-out option for students wearing masks? I mean, I, I, I know it's been a <laughs> controversial decision to say the least among the community, but for you know, health experts like yourselves, does this feel like a win? Um, ab absolutely. We've been we've been talking all along, and, and fortunately, we are uh, we have been very closely working with our colleagues at the um, at the Lee County School District throughout the pandemic. Um, they've been great partners with us. Um, we've been encouraging all along um, that parents have their students masked. Their children should be masked when we are in uh, times of high and substantial transmission. That is a CDC recommendation. It's a recommendation by the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, both of those agencies and, and all of the healthcare um, providers who are associated with them recognize the importance of children being in school. Um, but we also recognize the importance of children being healthy and of children being able to keep their families healthy. 
Um, like we mentioned earlier in this call, um, and, and like you alluded to, pregnant women bring home their babies. Many of those pregnant women already have school-aged kids who are potential vectors. And those recently delivered mothers are at increased risk of complication because of the things that Dr. Morris described about how the body has to get back to normal after pregnancy. The baby is at increased risk because the baby doesn't have an uh, an intact immune system yet. Um, And so any increased exposure from people who are ineligible to be vaccinated, like young school, school children under the age of 12, is a risk to those young families. And we want to protect those families as well as the children that are going to school. So, um, yes, we support masking. We support masking for everyone in our community right now, um, but certainly for those who cannot be protected by a vaccine. And that does include our kids under age 12. All right. And my final question, Dr. Stovall, um, refers to another grim development we learned about this week, and that's the new mobile refrigerated trailer at Cape Coral Hospital um, there to provide extra morgue space. Uh, to my knowledge, Sarasota Memorial Hospital has also leased one of these you know, mobile morgues, but they haven't actually used them yet. It's, it's more of a, sort of a preemptive move. Is that the same situation with the one at Cape Coral Hospital, or is it actually being used at this point? I can't answer that question as of today. I um, I would have to get back to you on that because I, I'm I'm not involved in those operations. I can tell you that, you know, hospitals nowadays are built with limited space for morgues because, um, you know, the success of the 21st century in medicine is um, is vast compared to where we were 50 years ago. So. It is um, not unusual when we are in an emergency situation like this for us to have to make these kinds of arrangements. Um, but I can't tell you the status of whether those have been actually used for storage of, um, of deceased individuals yet. Yeah, you make a good point there. I, you know, I worked for Lee Health at the, the, the emergency room at Health Park about a decade ago, and I don't know how much it's changed, but I remember being surprised at how small the morgue actually was. <laughs> um, Fortunate. Yes, yes, yes. Good thing. Uh, well, Dr. Morris, Dr. Stovall, is there anything else you'd like to add or anything I should have asked but failed to? I don't think so. We just want people to get vaccinated. Yeah. <laughs> Don't be afraid to get vaccinated if you're pregnant or breastfeeding. You know, it, it is safe. Um, the data it, that's emerging and has emerged does not show any any ill effects at all. And it will it will help you prevent getting moderate and severe disease from COVID. And that's going to be really important during your pregnancy. So um, a plea out there to all our pregnant women. All right. Well, Dr. Sherry Morris and Dr. Stephanie Stovall, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Lee Health System Director for Obstetric Services, Dr. Sherry Morris, and Lee Health Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist and Interim Chief of Quality and Patient Safety, Dr. Stephanie Stovall. 
That's all the time we have for today's show. If you missed any of the program, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org gcl, or you can subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by Mike Canary and yours truly. Our director is Richard Chinqui. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thanks for listening. I'm John Davis. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO, Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida. Thank you.